You're listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today Jonathan Chan. He's the Executive Director of Churchill Activity, Activities and Tutoring, an organization that serves the youth of Richmond's East End. He is also a longtime personal friend of mine. Jonathan Chan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Stephen. Really glad to be here. So um, uh, for the first segment of the podcast, I'd like to talk about what CHAT is and what you do there. So could you just give me a brief history of the organization and then um, talk about what it does currently? Yeah, absolutely. CHAT, uh, we tend to refer to ourselves by the acronym CHAT, Churchill Activities and Tutoring. A lot of our history is just bound up even in that name. We're located, started in a geography called Church Hill here in the east end of Richmond, Virginia. And we started about 20 years ago. Our founders uh, were a young couple who had really kind of caught up with a vision for Christian community development. And Christian community development, also referred to as CCD, is is a set of principles uh, that really comes out of Jackson, Mississippi, and kind of the late stages of the civil rights movement. John Perkins, who was a, a local civil rights leader there, really wanted to mobilize Christians and churches in particular for local community development. And so came up with a set of principles around relocating, uh, around reconciliation, particularly racial reconciliation, and also redistribution of resources, whether that was through private charity and philanthropy uh, or also government means to really begin to heal a a lot of the wounds that had surfaced and become clear uh, and were being engaged as as those late stages of the movement uh, began to wrap up. And so really focusing on economic and social challenges, uh, challenges of equity. And so at that time, uh, every part of what the neighborhood that we call Church Hill um, was very much impoverished, uh, very much suffered from deep social, economic, and educational inequality. Uh, And as you might expect, was uh, almost entirely Black. So Percy and Angie, who are a young white couple, moved in at the invitation of a local pastor, Don Coleman, who uh, had grown up here in the neighborhood and grown up in the projects, um, was ministering and continued to stay in the area even after much of the black middle class had left. He, he stayed and was continuing to minister in the neighborhood. And so he was trying to bring in anybody and everybody who was willing to come uh, and be a part of a movement of renewal in the neighborhood. Percy and Angie, they moved in. They began to build relationships with kids and families on their block and around them. And really what became clear was that a lot of the kids were asking for help with homework and also just wanted access to fun activities, field trips, museums, sports, uh, filling in a lot of that civil society gap that impoverished communities experience without access to a lot of those types of resources and experiences. So that's how the name was born, Churchill Activities and Tutoring. Over the years, a number of other programs and initiatives were added to that initial kind of after-school and summer programming element. We started an independent Christian high school uh, that creates a small school experience uh, for teens in the area. We have added a workforce development program, and that's really focused on teens and, and young people aged 18 to 24 to help teens and young people really prepare for uh, life-giving and uh, life-sustaining careers. And so that really sums up the work that we're doing today. We've gone through a number of evolutions and, and like many nonprofits that are kind of in that 10 to 20 year lifespan, we've gone through a few different life cycles of uh, launch and growth uh, and then you know, a level of maturity, also moments and periods of decline and uncertainty. And so where we are today is we're really focused, we have really refocused on those three core programs, our after-school programming, our high school, uh, and our workforce development programming. And we're in this process right now of really trying to reimagine and reclarify our mission, our vision, and our values. And so I'll talk about a little bit of where we think this is, where I think this is going to land for us. We remain, uh, as we have always been, just really focused on children and youth um, and wanting to make sure that 
every child and young person here in the East End of Richmond uh, has the opportunity to unlock their God-given potential. The challenges that they face are enormous, and you know we'll talk more about them as we talk about the larger political, social, cultural issues uh, that are uh, always a part of this podcast. Um, but the childhood poverty rate here in the East End of Richmond is about 70%. Uh, and that's double the childhood poverty rate of the city at large, which is around 40%. And that's about four to five times the national childhood poverty rate. So we deal with the challenges of concentrated poverty, the legacy and the current reality of systemic injustice and racial injustice. And so what we're trying to do is put programs around young people that help them unlock and discover their own potential, remind them that they're made in the image of God and have tremendous worth and value and have tremendous capacity. Uh, and then we wanna help lower some of these barriers, the educational barriers, the extracurricular and enrichment barriers, and then the, the workforce barriers. So we're working with around 125 young people right now, ch children and young people. Those numbers are a little bit smaller than what is normally would be happening because of the restrictions of COVID and challenges around physical distancing and transportation and space. But we're trying to hit in every area for these young people, social and emotional learning, academic uh, enrichment, uh, workforce preparation. And then as a Christian organization, we offer a number of opportunities for spiritual development and growth. That's not something that we coerce. That's not something that we make, uh, that we're trying to push down anybody's throat, but, but, but we uh, live and work and serve in a community that's uh, historically uh, very Christian. And, and that's a part of our identity as well. And so we're open to children and teens and families of any faith, but, but primarily the children and teens that we serve are coming from a Christian background or are very comfortable with a Christian background. And so that's, that's the work that we're doing right now. We're, we've doubled down on really doing that with increasing excellence and quality uh, and moving out of that scrappy kind of grassroots nonprofit mode to really trying to take an institutional and strategic approach to the work that we do, uh, really trying to attract the highest quality staff, building a representative staff team that has many uh, black professionals uh, who can really help students unlock uh, their potential in, in a, a majority black context. Uh, we're, we're continuing to reiterate our faith convictions uh, while also being as accessible and as open to as many as possible. Um, and we're trying to maintain this sense of community, even in, amidst the challenges of COVID and, of course, the social and political unrest uh, of our time. So, yeah, that, that hopefully that's a helpful summary of what yeah. we're doing. And I obviously could talk a lot more about that, but that's that's who we are and where we are. No, that's that was great. Thank you. Um... Yeah, now I just wanted to open up the conversation to, um, I think you alluded, it, alluded to it a bit, just um, kind of the challenges that Richmonders face in the, in the east end of Richmond. Um, it's, I guess, uh, they're, they're many and varied. Um, uh, I guess they're economic and social, but um, can you talk a little bit more about the challenge that uh, the youth that you serve face? Yeah, I, I, happy, to, happy to talk about this. I think one resource for your listeners that they might be interested in uh, is, is a book called Richmond's Unhealed History, which is written by Reverend Ben, ben Campbell, who has lived and served uh, in this neighborhood for, for a number of decades. And he does a, a tremendous job of talking about the city at large, but really a, a lot of it focuses on the East End because of the historic and present realities um, that you're asking me to talk about. Historically, um, Richmond, as, as, as probably everybody knows, is the capital of the Confederacy. Uh, Richmond is also a site, uh, a very important site in the domestic slave trade in the United States. And this is not something that was well known or, or, or well understood uh, until, uh, except for the last 20 years, uh, that Richmond was probably the largest or, or one, of the, one of the largest sources of what's called the downriver slave trade. Uh, with all of this inequity uh, was focused on the East End. So the slave docks where hundreds of thousands of uh, African-Americans were traded, uh, bought and sold and sent downriver to plantations in the deep South. 
Uh, that's a part of our history and that's a part of our context. Uh, that's just, you know, about a mile from where I'm, I'm talking right now. And, and so that's a part of our overall uh, several hundred year history. When we bring it forward to the 20th century, we, we have a lot of the dynamics that a lot of American cities face. Segregation, uh, and in particular, particularly geographic and housing segregation. And so the East End uh, in the early part of the 1900s was uh, a community where uh, redlining and uh, neighborhood covenants and all sorts of other tools that have been used in the history of housing segregation were used to essentially concentrate black people and lower income black people into this area. As that took place, uh, white homeowners and, and white people left the area. Uh, and as that took place, th those cycles continued to accelerate. And so if you were to overlay a redlining map of the city of Richmond and, and looking at uh, how the Federal Housing Administration uh, essentially did not provide insurance uh, for mortgages um, in, in these in these redlined areas, you would see that that almost the entire East End was very heavily redlined. And so this accelerated this process of, of housing segregation. Uh, and of course, the other legal processes that we know about with segregation uh, also took place. And then as we kind of come forward into the middle of the 20th century, uh, and as some of these um, very overt forms of discrimination and segregation were outlawed, uh, one way of reading the history is that institutionally, the institutions uh, reverted to, to somewhat more covert systems of segregation and discrimination. And so part of what happened here is that the East End has four of the city's six housing projects. It's an immense concentration uh, of poverty and particularly uh, a segregated concentration. There was one housing project that was designated for white people and that was put south of the river. And then there were five housing projects designated for black people, four of them in this neighborhood, one just outside the geographic boundaries, uh, the traditional geographic boundaries of this neighborhood. In addition to that, part of what happened in, in Richmond's history and that has happened in a number of cities is that an interstate highway was built right through the middle of the city. The course of this highway, uh, it's the 6495 interchange now, went right through Jackson Ward, which is a neighborhood adjacent to the East End. And that was considered, uh, that was historically a black middle-class neighborhood and a concentration of wealth. So Maggie Walker, uh, one of the very historic black bankers, black female banker, that was where her bank and her house was located. Uh, a number of other luminaries of, of Richmond's uh, black society had their homes and their businesses there. And in the course of the middle of the 20th century, all of that community or much of that community was wiped out by the construction of this highway. This highway essentially ran a course that surrounded the different housing projects. And so created this natural barrier, again, segregating folks who were living there. And then there were there were even and, and there were even additional plans to build another highway that would run right through. So literally just two blocks from my house is a bridge, the Martin Luther King Bridge. It's designed for four lanes going either way. It, and there's no reason to it runs right into a residential area. Well, apparently in the 70s, there was a, a, a plan to turn. Uh, a, a major thoroughfare of the East End into another highway. And that would have completely segregated those four housing projects and completely concentrated that poverty. Uh, that was averted, but we still see a lot of the impacts of that. And so that's driven this, you know, 70% childhood poverty rate. Uh, that's driven uh, an enormous segregation in terms of economic opportunities because this neighborhood is, is almost completely residential. Uh, but because of the lack of transportation and opportunities, it's very hard for young people or anybody in this neighborhood to access uh, jobs, to access education, to access skills. Uh, another of the, the major challenges that we as a city face is, is the educational funding gap. Uh, because we're a capital city, we have um, a lot of land that is non-taxed. And when the state calculates you know, the share of uh, funding per pupil uh, to, that it allocates to local school systems, 
so much of that is dependent on the taxable lands within the within the city or within the locality. And so we're, we're hit by that challenge as well. And so all of this comes together uh, in this really damaging and pernicious mix of systemic and economic factors that make it incredibly challenging for young people in our neighborhood to thrive and lead to all of the challenges that, that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, or a lot of language that they're familiar with, the school to prison pipeline, um, just a really damaged sense of, of, of self-identity, uh, constant repetition of, of, of damaging messages, um, a combination of over and under policing. We have a lot of visible police presence in this neighborhood, but we also have a lot of murders and violent crimes that go unsolved. Um, and, and all of these things really come together to create a, just a challenging set of factors for kids and young people, both systemic, uh, some cultural and also some personal. Uh, none of them, their fault. None of them the fault of a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. And so that's a part of the reason why we do the work that we do and why we also advocate for other broader changes and why we're glad to work with lots of partners who are working on lots of different parts of this challenge. Yeah, that was um, a very well told summary. Thank you. Um, I'm curious if you could talk more about some of the things that you are advocating for to kind of redress those problems in the present day. Obviously, we're um, advocating for our, our own work. In, in, in which we're both partnering with the local school system and providing after-school programming. Mm-hmm. We're also offering an alternative in, in having an independent uh, private Christian high school that, that provides a, an experience for students who want that small, smaller school experience. And so we're, we're trying to take, in a sense, a deep and wide approach to that, uh, knowing that there's a variety of institutions that can meet students and young people's needs. We're also, you know, and so in doing that, we'll advocate and, 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 uh, support anything that benefits the local school system. Uh, for example, there was a, a, a small raise in the restaurant and meals tax a few years ago, and we had, a number of our staff went to the to city hall to advocate for that in the public meetings. And we advocated for that even though we ourselves operate a cafe, uh, and so we were hit by that. Um, but we believe that having an educational system that really works for our most vulnerable students uh, is is really important to help redress some of the challenges in the East End. It's a ch- there, there are other issues that, that we would, um, where we're, we're, we'll lend our voice or be supportive of or encourage staff to lend their voice to housing uh, and creating more affordable housing uh, and creating a better uh, government housing experience, low income housing experience, subsidized housing experience it is vital and crucial. Those are really complicated challenges um, but we've partnered with a couple of local affordable housing organizations that work to make home ownership or rental more accessible to people in this neighborhood. And, and what we'll do is we've partnered with them. We've had our workforce development teams help with construction. Uh, we've provided some of these wraparound services to some of their tenants and families. And so that that housing piece is, is also critical. And I think we've, we, we've, we've been uh, vocal on uh, issues surrounding really just uh, within the church. As a faith-based organization, we pull a lot of our volunteers uh, and donors and and public supporters from churches all around the city. Uh, And we have a lot of churches who are in more uh, racially integrated or white areas, uh, more economically privileged or economically well-off areas. And so a part of our work too is working with folks who want to volunteer, who want to give, who want to support, who want to come alongside young people who, who are motivated out of their faith to do that and to help provide or to point them to others who can provide educational opportunities for ways that they can be involved, to ways that they can advocate for broader regional solutions, for ways that they can think about their economic choices, their political choices, their faith choices, uh, and ways that those can have a benefit and an impact for young people here in the East End. And so we've been a part of some of those conversations, we've also pointed them to other organizations that are helping to lead those conversations specifically for Christians. Cool. So um, I don't, you mentioned briefly the issue around policing. I was just curious um, how you perceive the Richmond City Police relative to um, broader issue of policing and as it relates to predominantly African American communities and anything else you're specifically aware of there. 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I want to caveat this by saying that I'll just speak for myself here okay. um, and, and not, not, not for our organization or yep. not for anybody else yep. in this. Um, you know, obviously the discourse of this last uh, year and, and I mean, several years, uh, you know, decades past that we've been having the tough conversations and challenges uh, and even that word conversations can sometimes diminish like just real challenges around policing, uh, public safety, crime, uh, racial inequities throughout all of those categories and connected to, to all facets of this problem. Um, I, I think my perspective as somebody who's, who's working in this kind of community where a lot of those problems come to bear, somebody who lives in this community where a lot of those problems come to bear, um, the, the scale of the problem, the complexity of the problem uh, can feel really overwhelming because there are so many institutional and systemic, but also personal uh, and individual factors that come to bear on all of this. I, I think I can safely say that, yeah, I, I, I see, and I can speak from my own personal experience that I see the inequity, um, just, to, just to give a, a, a small story. And I, I don't wanna overgeneralize from this, you know, mm -hmm. the, the problem of anecdote is not data, but <laughs> or sorry, the singular of data isn't, isn't an anecdote, but, but in some ways it's the only way we experience the world. Yep. Uh, for a number of years, I went as, as living in this community, you know, I drove around a 1997 Toyota Corolla that had busted headlights and expired registration and expired inspection and was all sorts of scratched up and, uh, had just multiple violations. Um, I never got pulled over once. And I could see, I, I don't want to infer too much, but it, this happened so many times that I can't draw any other mm -hmm. conclusion. Mm -hmm. I would pass police all the time. I would see the double take, the like, there's something wrong with this vehicle. And then seeing me, an Asian American uh, man behind the wheel of the car, and then them just deciding not to do anything about that. And I contrast that with the experience of students, of friends, of staff, of community members who over and over again have so many stories of being pulled over, of being stopped for minor violations uh, that I've never been stopped for, even though we live in the same neighborhood and even though the violations are the same. And so that's just a, a personal experience of a larger problem that, that we hear about both in statistics, um, but that I hear about over and over and over again from students, families, staff, and friends uh, who are black and who experience that in this neighborhood and outside of this neighborhood. We just see, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I also see the tremendous challenges that police have in solving a lot of these problems and very much can can understand the broader point that is often made that that we are relying on the police to, to do too many things and to address mental health challenges and crises, to address uh, domestic disputes that haven't yet turned violent, but and that would really benefit from a social worker or from a counselor or a therapist. Uh, I, I see the impact of the police being the only person, the only entity that anybody knows to call, even though they might not be the best ones to address the challenge at hand. We live in a gentrifying community as well. And so we have a lot of people who have moved into the neighborhood who are very quick to call the police mm -hmm. um, and seeing the impact that that has on the workload and the strain on officers. So I say all of this, um, you know, there, yeah, there's a lot of thoughts that I could share on the, on the larger overall issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I want to ground it in those experiences, you know, because perhaps uh, you have listeners or, or different people who, who have been on the podcast that I've heard maybe don't have that, that particular perspective of yep. kind of seeing it up close and personal. You know, I live two blocks away from the police precinct. So I come into contact with a lot of officers mm -hmm. um, and we've had, you know, shootings on our block uh, a couple of times this year. So again, I've seen responses, I've seen the interactions. I, I, I think, I think be, beyond that, um, we have a lot of challenges and 
I, I would say that many people that I talk to in the neighborhood, in the community, um, have, yeah, I don't know what the right word here is, an ambiguous relationship, a love-hate relationship. Those don't quite come close to describing it. Um, but I think have a realistic, at least in my point of view, a, a realistic understanding of the need for law enforcement and public safety officers, for the need uh, for, for, for understanding the, the scale of the challenge and, and the, the crime and the inequity that can take place when that is withdrawn and when that doesn't uh, solve violent crime and attend to, to property crime um, that can be really damaging for, for a family on the margins and that can't keep law and order and safety. And then at the same time, also just have a sober view of the inequities and the ways in which African-Americans are um, just systematically discriminated against in when it comes to public safety and policing. I, th I think one, one uh, commentator that, that I've really benefited from uh, is, is Jane Koston, who formerly at Vox and now at the, at the New York Times. And um, one, one, one phrase that she has used that has resonated very much with me is this, is this idea that communities like this one are over-policed and under-policed at the mm -hmm. same time. That might not be exactly how she puts it, but that's more or less the sense of it, in that we have a lot of police, we have a lot of people being arrested for infractions and violations, a lot of interactions, a, a fair amount of use of force. And yet some of the things that really matter, murder, assault, uh, these violent crimes, um, these really damaging property crimes go unsolved. Um, and, and, and the challenges and the ways in which crime can really hold a community back don't get solved, don't get worked on. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's that's the challenge that I observe and that I experience here, um, for all of the systemic reasons that I think uh, a, a lot of people uh, that you've talked to already can can and, and do name. Okay, I'd like to go into our second segment here and kind of get your perspective on where America is and how you're thinking about how our country is dealing with these kind of broader racial and cultural questions uh, from your perspective as a second generation Chinese American. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Stephen. Again, I, I think I'll start a little bit personally here and then maybe zoom out a little yep. bit to, to some of these yep, larger that'd be great. issues. Um, you know, we're recording this on Friday, March 19th, and it's, we're just a few days removed from the Atlanta shootings uh, in which most of the victims uh, were Asian American women. Uh, the shooter, uh, a young white man, and, you know, there, there's still kind of conflicting reports about motivation and mm -hmm. what he said or didn't say. Apparently, it's being reported in the Korean press um, that he was making uh, racial slurs or, or specifically targeting Asians. And obviously, he's claimed something different um, to the police. And so, you know, yeah, just personally, it, it, it's a challenging moment. It's been a challenging moment these last few days. Um, it's an even more challenging moment for um, not even moment, but but it, it, it's it's yet another reminder, particularly for Asian American women, uh, just kind of their tenuous place uh, in our society, um, and it's a reminder to me uh, of what it feels like to have, in some respects, a tenuous place in American society. To be an Asian American uh, is something that can be often hard to pin down. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I want to name that, that Asian Americans have, have very dramatically different experiences depending on a variety of factors. Depends on what wave of immigration you know, our parents came in. It depends on what our circumstances were, our family circumstances in our country of origin. It depends on country of origin because, you know, um, they're very different outcomes uh, given whether somebody immigrated voluntarily from an East Asian country versus as a refugee from a Southeast Asian country, uh, whether they're a part of a, a minority ethnic group in their country of origin. Uh, 
Asian Americans uh, appear to have the widest range of socioeconomic inequality of any uh, single demographic, single racial group in our country. Um, and so that, that experience is very different. The experience is very different depending on where you are in the country. And so I, I'm a Chinese American who grew up in Richmond in the capital of Confederacy. My experience is gonna be dramatically different from somebody who say grew up in San Francisco uh, or grew up in Houston, or grew up in New York City, or grew up in Minneapolis. And so I, here, especially, I don't want to generalize mm-hmm. uh, my personal experiences. But, but my personal experiences contain a lot of the strands that, that, that are being talked about, that have been talked about and are being even more talked about, this sense of alienation and, and not being sure where and to whom I belong. This sense of being outside of um, kind of the black-white binary that so often dominates uh, our racial discourse, and and I think for good reasons. I don't want to uh, negate the the reasons, the historic and contemporary reasons why that is the case. Sure. I would very much agree that there is um, there's an important history there that yeah, it's, we have yeah, to it's keep an, in mind and exactly, in current, currently important, as well. Yep. It's an important, a unique history in that uh, what some might call anti-blackness has a particular specific history and meaning mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that, that again, it, it stares me right in the face every single day in this community where I live and work and, and the reason why I do this work. But yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's it's a challenging place to be as somebody who is a second generation American who has enjoyed a lot of privilege uh, in my life, uh, certainly economically, educationally, and, and, and to some extent, I think socially, that it has been, for me at least, easier than it is for many to integrate with majority culture, uh, majority white culture. Um, because of my parents' education level and, and because of the industries in which they work, they were both scientists, uh, it gave me access to just tremendous opportunities here in this country that we would not have been able to access uh, in China, in Hong Kong, um, and that many minority groups in the United States can't access now. And so I think my experience is one of feeling caught in between privilege and also prejudice, because I've also experienced that alienation, because I've also experienced the name calling, the bullying, uh, the sense of being a perpetual outsider, the sense of, to be really candid, you know, the sense of not belonging to our ethnic group and people group of origin either, um, because I'm not somebody who um, uh, can really speak Chinese uh, is well connected back with relatives uh, or uh, people in the country of origin. And so it's a confusing place to be a, a lot of the time. Uh, even as we talk about that, that history of anti-Blackness, it, 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 it feels challenging. To be completely candid, it, it feels challenging sometimes to even talk about this experience uh, because there's this internal fear that I'm elevating my experience over the incredible systemic material um, deprivation and harm that has occurred for black people in this country. And that again, that I, that I literally wake up every day seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so, so that's, that, that in a sense uh, is the challenge and um, yeah, that, that, that colors my perspective that we're in a very tough time. We're in a very dangerous time. And that, that's not news to anybody. You know, anybody who's paying attention knows we're in a tough and, mm-hmm. and, and a challenging time. Um, and so there, there are days, frankly, when I'm very pessimistic, very, very pessimistic about our future as, as we try to live into being a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic democracy. Uh, and knowing that 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 even the attempt to be that is really 
truly only, you know, 60, 70 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we are facing tremendous challenges in making that possible and that we don't see eye to eye on that uh, in that that for many white Americans, the civil rights movement uh, is over and that all of the victories that needed to be won as a part of that have been won and that uh, racism is, is as part of our past and not part of our present. At the same time, there are will be even though I think I, you know, for the most part agree with and adopt a lot of the rhetoric and the substance of positions that are more progressive and that are that are much more common on the left. Um, there will there are also concerns that I have with with some of the excesses and with some of the rhetoric that that can be found there. Um, and even 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 some of the lack of clarity around around analysis of power. You know, we still live in a white majority country. And it's quite possible that we will always live in a white majority country there. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the changing demographics of our country. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, from recent research that I've seen, the dates keep getting pushed back on when we become a minority majority country. And so we have to find a way to live together as a people without resorting. um, To racial essentialization. Yeah, racial yeah. essentialization without resort uh, without resorting to to, to ethnic violence, um, and again, like I I, I say that, uh, and what I don't want to um, what I don't want to 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 uh, give the impression is that I'm you know creating this like both sides equivalence, mm-hmm. right between uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And a lot of what we're seeing on the far right with white natu- white sure. nationalism, white supremacy. I, I think January 6th very clearly demonstrates to anybody, I would hope, uh, even though I know people would disagree, that that there isn't an equ- there isn't an equivalence there. Um, that that even though there might be excesses uh, or things that I disagree with or nuances that I think are missing sometimes from left and progressive positions. Um, Nothing compares to a 400-year history of enslavement, of genocide, of segregation, of racial terrorism, uh, of disenfranchisement that Black Americans have experienced, that Indigenous people experience in this country. Um, Yeah, and so, again, I don't want to give off that impression. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, when you ask for, for my perspective on this, the other thing that, that drives my perspective on this is, is my faith. Um, and just trying to reconcile the, the day-to-day social realities of what we're seeing, the, the, the immense systemic injustice, the immense challenges of our country, but also the, the hope and the, um, the vision that is offered through my understanding and through a kind of a multiracial evangelical understanding of, of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for me, uh, it, it begins with this statement in Genesis uh, that Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. And, and, and by that, we understand that all of humanity is created in the image of God uh, and its inherent dignity, worth, and value. It's the foundation of our work here in this neighborhood and it's the foundation of, of, our, of, our, of our social understanding. And it ends in Revelation with the vision that, that, that John, uh, the revelator, sees. Uh, and, and in that text, he's given a vision of heaven uh, in the end times. And he sees people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And so ethnicity and culture, race is something that is, in that understanding, taken with us into heaven into the afterlife. It's not something that's just incidental to, to life here on earth. In that same, uh, in that same text, we see that really the, the, the future of humanity, the end point of humanity, isn't everybody being taken up and brought up into heaven, but it's a renewed, a remade heaven, a remade earth, a renewed creation in which God sets everything right and puts everything in balance uh, and puts everything right with justice and dignity and, and equity for all. And so those are, I think, the strands for me that, that really kind of shape uh, and, and underpin my, um, 
misunderstandings here. Uh, I have this personal experience uh, and these personal experiences of both privilege, uh, but also prejudice. Uh, live and work in a community where I have many black students, friends, neighbors, coworkers, um, leaders who have experienced deep, deep injustice, uh, but also ground all of this uh, in my understanding of faith, uh, in my understanding of Christianity that points to and, and that gives Gives, gives a framework for us to understand sin and injustice, but also repentance and grace and forgiveness. And so I say all of that, like not to, I don't think come to a clear conclusion because again, mm. in, in the wake of what happened on, on Wednesday, I don't, I don't have one. Um, but, but that's what I'm trying to work out and, and live out in, in real time. And I'm grateful, um, you know, for thought leaders, uh, scholars, commentators, who can just help point the way in this and folks that, that maybe your, your listeners might be interested in. Um, there's this morning uh, a, a great op-ed by David Brooks as he was interviewing Esau Macaulay, who is a black uh, evangelical professor at Wheaton College, which is one of the kind of the flagship uh, institutions of evangelical higher education. Uh, also very much shaped by the work of Tom Skinner, who was very active during the civil rights movement. Uh, and kind of one of the early um, influences in the evangelical movement, speaking to the white evangelical movement about how to integrate personal faith and social transformation uh, in, in that particular context. Very much influenced by the work of, of Brenda Salter McNeil, um, who, who is a, a professor at Seattle Pacific University uh, and just a wonderful uh, black woman preacher and author and speaker. And then also very much influenced uh, just by the the um, the vision and the imagination that Andy Crouch puts forward in his books, uh, culture making, playing God, strong and weak, and, and the ways in which he is thinking about the kind of the Christian social imagination, uh, culturally, economically, um, and even politically, and, and the ways in which it intersects with race and culture in our country. Great, thank you. Um, one direction I'm interested in taking this is talking about the, the concept of multiculturalism. I guess one criticism you might hear from the right is sort of, I guess, that bleeding into cultural relativism and moral relativism. Um, and so uh, how, do you, how do you think about how to embrace a, a country with many ethnicities, each with their own cultural perspective, while still having some sort of shared vision of, of what is moral and right? Well, it's certainly challenging, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We, and like you said, we're just getting started, yeah. Yeah, we're just getting started to some extent. We're experiencing it now. We're experiencing what the challenges of that are. You know, I think one of the things that I actually find, um, what I find to some degree encouraging is that, uh, you know, as somebody who would consider myself an evangelical Christian, uh, though I, you know, disagree probably with a lot of the social and political views of white evangelicals, mm -hmm. um, with, with many of them, I certainly voted differently than most of them. Growing up in white evangelical context, there was a lot of talk about the ways in which we were moving into a postmodern, post-truth society. And certainly mm -hmm. some of that's true. Like we, we are in, in many ways in postmodernism. Um, but, but as we've had these debates and challenges around race and, and equity and justice, what seems to be really getting clarified is that people all across the spectrum are hungering for objective standards of truth and objective, objective standards of morality. Even though we, even though our rhetoric, even, even though people might, might not say that they are, it, it mm -hmm. seems clear to me that, that we don't, you don't go out in the street and put your body in the line for your preferences, mm -hmm. right? You go out for what you believe is true and right and good and just and, and true and right and good and just for you and for your children and for others. Um, we can't have robust, we can't have robust conversations around justice uh, and oppression without recognizing that there are objective standards of morality 
uh, truth and justice. Now, again, of course, we disagree. That's you know where the where the nut of right. it is is that we have tremendous um, disagreements about what those are, and even when we agree about what those are, we might when we apply them to situations, um, we might disagree about what's happening in the situation mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just been fascinating to me to see. Um, just to see the energy around that and to see that take place. That to me, again, as somebody who, who, who grew up in a white evangelical context that, that, that warned about the dangers of a post-truth of a morally mm-hmm. relative society, that where actually the pendulum is starting to swing back in a number of ways towards some absolutism. And, you know, when, when you hear some commentators complaining about uh, cancel culture uh, or, or being woke, um, it seems like a part of what's happening is it's there's this battle around defining the standard, defining right. what's objectively true or right. Um, and it's no longer this kind of live and let live. You get to live your truth. I get to live my truth. Again, mm-hmm. there's, there's parts of our culture that aren't um, quite there. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm just really interested in that energy towards, towards finding some of those absolutes. Um, yeah, I think the challenge, is, as you named, is that we're coming from, at it from a lot of different perspectives yep. and that um, we are having this clash um, around, around, around how that works and around to what areas does that apply. You've talked a lot about in uh, your past podcast interviews, uh, you know, the work of Jonathan Haidt, you know, mm-hmm. The Righteous Mind and kind of the framework that he lays out where you where there are these different moral intuitions, multiple different uh, intuitions. And in some respects, we're having a battle over wait, which which moral intuitions uh, matter the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, you know, for those uh, for those who are on the left and more progressive, kind of that care versus harm, uh, one is incredibly, incredibly salient. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I think it I think it is challenging. I think as I approach it, uh, as a Christian, um, I, I would say that 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 part of part of part of my role, part of our role, is to is to say that hey, we, in a humble way, in a way that creates space in the rest of our society for mm-hmm. the plurality of views, to say that we we actually think that we have um, access to that objective standard, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, people of faith, evangelical Christians conservative theologically conservative christians have been uh a part of perpetuating you know many of these injustices uh and many of these oppressions through the past but again part of what we're doing even when i say that even when i describe that is we are constantly going through this process of taking again what for christians what we believe is to be this objective source of truth Mm -hmm the scriptures and what's revealed to us in those scriptures, and then measuring all of our past works, all, all, all of our history, all of what's going on in the present by that and saying, we've got to constantly revise our biases, our understandings, our beliefs in light of this single source of objective truth. So I don't know how we resolve that as a country as a society sure. uh, that's how i'm working and, and that's yep. that's how uh, others around me are, are doing that is saying like we, we we have this scripture we have this source of truth everything else is kind of up for grabs and we're that doesn't mean that we ignore other sources of truth by any means mm-hmm. um but in terms but, of moral truth yeah. exactly and yep. it gives us a foundation it gives us an underpinning from which to say like hey i can i can change my mind politically i can uh, be open to other points of view politically, socially, economically, because I've got this grounding and this mooring in this objective religious truth that I have. And so I'm not threatened uh, as long if my identity is rooted in this in in this for what for me is a spiritual kind of transcendent understanding. Then these are the political, social, economic, social uh, questions. They, they just carry less um, they just carry less weight mm-hmm. uh, not to say that they aren't important but they don't have ultimate determination on the state of my soul sure uh, and so I can repent I can say I was wrong I can say 
you have a point and I need to listen to that. I can humble myself because I have access to what I believe is kind of objective, religious, transcendent truth. Cool. All right. Um, final question, which you know as a listener to the podcast is, can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from someone you disagreed with and thought, you know, you might have a point? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of those. I think, you know, one of the things that maybe sets me apart from, from some of your other guests is that uh, I don't do a lot. I don't commentary. engage. Yeah. yeah, I don't engage yep, yep, in a yep, lot yep. of discourse for a living. But I appreciate um, you being willing to do this. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, but 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 I'm in a leadership position. I'm in a management position. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm not engaging in the discourse or, or in commentary. Um, I'm making decisions. I, I'm taking discourse and commentary and saying, like, oh, how does it apply? Uh, and how do we work out some of these conversations um, in real time in management decisions that I have to make in budgetary decisions and HR decisions. And so that is there, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of give and take there. And so I, you know, uh, I, I do think, I do wonder, sorry, this is a way, <laughs> this might be against the spirit of the question, yeah. but, but fine. I do think, you know, I wonder if commentators and pundits, you know, if they were in more management, more collaborative, more teamwork oriented positions, like mm -hmm. that is, I'm either going to, to work and manage and lead in a way that is constantly saying, you might have a point, we disagree mm -hmm. about this, but we've got to come together and we've got to find a way to do this work together. Yep. Being in that position, just that means that has to be a part of my day to day. And I have to be open. I have people around me who have different sets of expertise and different sets of experience. I've got to be open to those things. Um, I have to work with a board of directors. I have to work with the community. I have to work with donors. I have to work with staff, with students and families. And so I'm constantly receiving and constantly need to be seeking out input from just a, from a diverse and wide array of stakeholders. I think the more that our commentators and our pundits maybe are forced into roles that have to do a lot of that, then, mm -hmm. then maybe the, our, our commentary and our discourse may be better. And, and, you know, the, the state of our discourse as, as certainly you're trying to do might get healthier and, and might be yeah. more expansive and permissive and, and be able to acknowledge each other. Yeah. That was a unique and insightful way to answer the question. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> and, um, thank you for coming on. You might have a point. Thanks, Stephen. Really appreciated it. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.